This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan. This week on Face the Nation, the pandemic continues to rage as the presidential race shifts into high gear and President Trump ramps up his campaign to discredit mail-in voting. The case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence is open and shut. Joe Biden named Senator Kamala Harris his running mate and takes aim at President Trump's management of the pandemic. We just need a president and a vice president willing to lead and take responsibility. Not as this president says, it's not my fault. Biden's approach is regressive, it's anti-scientific, and it's very defeatist. The attacks heat up as the president rails against mail-in voting, and the Postal Service alerts 46 states that absentee ballots may not arrive by Election Day. They want to send in millions and millions of ballots. And you see what's happening. They're being lost. They're being discarded. They're finding them in piles. It's going to be a catastrophe. This morning, White House senior advisor Jared Kushner weighs in. We'll also ask him about the breakthrough in the Middle East he helped broker. This could be the worst fall from a public health perspective we've ever had. The CDC projects 200,000 Americans could die from the coronavirus by Labor Day, while schools juggle reopening and increasing cases. Our guests, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, where students are returning to the classroom, and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, where all classes will be remote in September. We'll talk with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb about the rising death toll. And we'll be joined by Dmitry Alperovich, co-founder of CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity company that investigated Russian hackers in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Plus, on the heels of an historic VP pick, our new battleground tracker looks at the impact of Kamala Harris in the race. And we remember 100 years of women's suffrage. That's all ahead on Face the Nation.
Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Our new normal in the U.S. has become persistent coronavirus infections and deaths. Each day this week, there were over 50,000 new cases and more than 1,000 deaths. That's where we seem to be stuck as we head into what the CDC director said this week could be the worst fall we've ever had. We begin this morning with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman in Decatur, Georgia. As schools reopen, try taking America's temperature for COVID. Worry surges with the virus. One sick child can empty a classroom. Ask this Florida elementary school. There's no playbook on this. Not in Mississippi. Schools in 38 counties report COVID patients. Not in Georgia. Cherokee County already has quarantined 1,200 students and staff. I hope people who can't wear a mask are staying home because, you know, we have that option here. You, you don't have to come into school. On college campuses, it's move-in day for the virus. Everyone's kind of freaking out. Two dorms and a fraternity at the University of North Carolina report COVID outbreaks. In one week, Notre Dame reported 44 positive cases. It didn't seem terribly safe, so we're kind of sticking to ourselves for the time being and seeing how it plays out. Ten states have rising COVID cases, and COVID deaths are up in nine states. Across America, four of the top five areas for COVID deaths are in South Texas, despite the state closing bars and mandating masks. It is easy to get a sense of fatigue. It's easy to want to stop having to comply with those standards. Florida's governor is strong-arming Hillsborough County, the Tampa area. Either reopen schools or he'll bankrupt the school system by withholding up to $200 million in state aid. It would be really bad policy to deny those many other parents the opportunity to resume in-person instruction for their kids. But so criticisms about bad COVID policy have also dogged DeSantis. Florida remains a global epicenter for the virus. The state now nears 10,000 COVID deaths. Here in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has adamantly opposed mandating masks. But after a leaked White House report criticized Georgia's COVID response, Kemp has backed off. His new executive order will allow cities and communities to require masks going forward. It's one more sign that six months into America's epidemic, there still really is no COVID playbook. Margaret? Mark Strassman, thank you. We now go to Bedminster, New Jersey, where President Trump's advisor and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, join us. Good morning to you. And first off, I just want to extend our condolences to your family. I know the president's brother died yesterday. Thank you very much. Now, the president loved his brother very much, and uh, he was able to see him uh, the day before yesterday. And uh, his brother was very proud of him. And uh, Obviously a very tough moment for the president, but he's uh, looking forward to continuing to do great things and make his brother proud. I'm sure. Thank you. Um, I, I do want to get to some business here. Uh, Jared, you, you have a wide portfolio on the issue of coronavirus. On Wednesday, we had over 1,500 deaths in this country in a single day. That brings us back to the kind of rate we were at in the month of May. You heard the CDC director. Uh, they're projecting 200,000 deaths by Labor Day. Do you believe the administration has control of the virus? And what do you think you've done wrong? Right. So uh, back in May, I believe the rate was about 2,500 deaths a day. So we're still below that peak. We have seen over the last two weeks that uh, hospitalizations have come down. Uh, the president's taken a very aggressive approach, not just in the hot spots, but also uh, in what we call the ember cities to, to push all the different uh, measures that we can take, like wearing a mask, social distancing, 
uh, using best practice, but uh, most importantly, the president's really advanced the use of a lot of therapeutics, which is bringing the case fatality rate down uh, better, uh, which has been a good thing, and obviously accelerating a vaccine. The fastest vaccine ever to a phase three trial was 13 months, and uh, President Trump did it uh, here in four months, and we have six different candidates that are entering phase three trials. We're simultaneously mass producing it. So at some point, we will get to the other end of this pandemic. And in the meantime, um, you know, all different countries, all different states are trying different things. As the federal government, we've been trying to share best practices. We've been speaking with a lot of governors, and we've been making sure that all the different states have all the resources they need in order to take a tailored strategy, given the data that they see on the ground. But I want to know, though, what is the actual conviction of the task force at this point? Is it to contain the spread of the virus or is it to, as Dr. Atlas, the new advisor to the task force, says, really just isolate and protect vulnerable, high-risk individuals? Well, look, we know a lot more than we did five months ago. When we uh, when we did 15 days to slow the spread, it wasn't 15 days to get rid of the, the, the virus. It was a global pandemic. It was infecting all over the country. It was to slow the spread and make sure we had the resources we need. Now we have a lot more knowledge about who the virus impacts in, in which ways, and we've created a lot of ways to prevent it from spreading in certain places, and we've created a lot of ways to help people who do get it have, uh, have a much more uh, benign experience with it. So uh, we're entering a much more strategic approach, which we're going to be taking until we do uh, have a fully approved and, and safe vaccine that we can widely distribute, where we're trying to use all the resources we can to uh, optimize for the best results possible. But uh, again, even Dr. Fauci this week said that lockdowns are not the answer, and right. we need to find a way through this unprecedented time to use the resources we need in order to uh, live uh, as normal life as possible while taking the restrictions that will help us save as many people as possible and to keep our economy as healthy as possible so that when this is over, uh, we haven't destroyed our country um, in, order to, uh, in order to get through it. Right, but what is the strategy in terms of, is, are you looking at containing? Because if you listen to Dr. Atlas, uh, this new advisor, he has talked about really just protecting the vulnerable. But according to the CDC, 45% of adults, that's nearly half of Americans, have comorbidities. That's diabetes, that's asthma, that's just being overweight. A huge portion of the United States is vulnerable here. Do you think you have control of the virus? Yeah, but if you look at the people who unfortunately have succumbed to the virus, most of them are over 70 and most of them have been in nursing homes. So we've been uh, doubling and tripling down on getting the point of care tests to the nursing homes, uh, getting the right PPE to the nursing homes. But Margaret, look, I came on today to talk about uh, the historic breakthrough that the president achieved for peace in the Middle East. It's the first peace agreement in 26 years. And I will say that this has been a strategy we've been working on for the last three and a half years. Well, I do, and every step I do along the way, I face criticism that, for these actions. The president faced criticism for these actions. Right. And so the president takes a common sense approach. He's based on science. He's based on data, not based on conventional thinking. And again, I think that you're seeing the president continue to work with the governors and everyone to bring forward uh, the best policies in order to uh, uh, to get the best outcome possible with the virus. OK, before we move on, though, you're a parent. There are a lot of nervous parents out there, as you just heard. Are you sending your children back to in-person education in a classroom? Uh, absolutely. The, 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 the rate, again, You're based on the, the data about and the science that I've been exposure. given, and I'm sorry. 
No, because uh, again, you know, children have a, a, a six times higher chance to die from the flu than from the coronavirus. So based on the data I've seen, I don't believe that that's a risk. Again, this virus impacts different people in different ways. We know a lot more now than we did. Uh, and assuming my, our school is not opening up five days a week, I wish they were, but uh, we absolutely will be sending our kids back to school and I have no fear in doing so. Um, I, I want to quickly ask you about the election before we go to the Middle East, because you do play a key role as an advisor. The Postal Service sent letters, as you know, about 46 states saying that mail-in ballots may not arrive in time by Election Day. You were deeply involved in 2016. Back, in that, back then, President Trump performed better than his Democratic rival with voters 65 and over. These are people who would count as, as vulnerable and might be nervous about in-person voting. Are you worried you're going to disenfranchise some of your own voters in the next election by not giving emergency aid to the Postal Service now? Um, okay, again, I hope we'll get to talk about Middle East peace in a minute, but I'll, I'll give you a quick answer on that. Number one, uh, Dr. Fauci said this week that there should be no fear for people to go out and vote in person. Uh, number two, I have a friend in New Jersey just got married. That person got sent two ballots, one in her old name and one in her new name. Uh, I think what President Trump wants is a fair election. If you have a tried and true system where they've been doing it like absentee ballots, where there's uh, some security mechanisms built in, uh, that's totally acceptable. That's a great thing to do. But you can't have a new system being tried where there's not the right time to do it and expect them to get it right and then expect that Americans will have confidence in the elections. Uh, the last election, you know, people went crazy for a couple of years uh, based on the Russians spending $100,000 on Facebook. But you're not afraid Facebook, this could backfire on your own campaign? Imagine what people can do. Look, we have a great operation. Uh, we're very confident. We're in much better shape now than we were in 2016. We have over a million and a half volunteers in the field, uh, 1,500 uh, paid staff on board in all the different states. We're playing in states that we didn't win last time. We think we have a great opportunity. And again, you know, just like President Trump achieved a historic Middle East uh, deal, which I hope we'll get to talk about, uh, he continues to defy odds and accomplish things. And the yeah. American people are tired of politicians who come to Washington, don't get anything done. They want people who, like President Trump, who may not, you know, do well, things in a conventional way, but he delivers results, and that's what the people want from their leaders. Well, and, and many of those voters would like to vote safely by mail if they're not comfortable going to a polling facility. On the Middle East, there were hostilities overnight in Gaza. There were Israeli airstrikes. Palestinian militants fired off rockets. Um, doesn't this underscore that the core conflict in the region remains unaddressed with what you just negotiated? And what is your response? I mean, do you have outreach right now to the Palestinian Authority? and to the region. Okay. Well, 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 that's a very negative framing. Let me take one minute before we go to that question to basically say, look, in the last 26 years, this is the first peace agreement that we've had between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, between an Arab country and the Jewish country coming together, putting old conflicts behind. There's still 100%. a lot of people in the region that is a significant who, A, want to be stuck. I, I'm speaking not uh, about so the UAE and Israel, be... but about the escalation overnight. That just happened. Yeah, I'll get to that. So, so, so to address that, number one is you have a lot of people in the region who, A, want to be stuck in the past. They want to cause instability. They want the region to be stuck in old conflicts. President Trump has refused uh, to allow those people to dictate the agenda. Instead, he's tried to pull people together around shared interests. People in the region want security, and they want uh, the ability to have economic prosperity. And that's what President Trump has realigned the region around. Look, these are people, you know, Hamas and people in Gaza, they've had the same business plan for the last 10 years. And the international community has been stupid enough to allow them to get away with it. So there's no right? they, out, you know, outreach right now to stop a, this? Uh, look, w I think that we're dealing with Israel and they'll you know, deal with it accordingly. This flares up every now and then. 
but what we've done is we've outreached the Palestinians. We've put a big plan on the table. The people of Gaza, you know, are being held captive now by their leaders in Hamas, who are basically a terror organization. Uh, but we have a plan on the table. If they're willing to commit to peace and they're willing to have a real security environment uh, that's verifiable and actually long-lasting, not some of the BS things that have been done in the past, uh, then we have a, an economic plan that can go in. It can reduce the poverty rate there uh, by 50 percent, uh, create over a million jobs, double their GDP. Uh, it's got a lot of geographical advantages and couldn't be quite thriving. But unfortunately, the Palestinian people are hostages to very poor leadership. Uh, but we can't allow that to hold the whole region back. And uh, what President Trump done is he hasn't focused his strategy on mm -hmm. failed conventional thinking of the past. He's tried to realign it around future thinking. And again, yeah. this goes to all the things we were talking about. President Trump is a business guy. He's a leader. He's a deal maker. What he does is he looks at things rationally with common sense and yeah. he pushes them forward in a way that makes sense. And that's how he delivers results like we did on this historic agreement. All right. Jared Kushner joining us from New Jersey this morning. Thank you. We will be back in one minute with Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Stay with us. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. We go now to Chicago, where protests turned violent late yesterday. At least 17 officers were injured and 24 people were arrested. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is there. Mayor, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, can you address for us why this happened? Uh, I know you had messaged ahead of it that you had hoped protests would remain peaceful and that you wouldn't see a repeat of what happened last Sunday. You called that last Sunday a planned attack. Is that what happened this time? No, look, um, unfortunately, what we've seen in cities all across the country, not just Chicago, is a continuing wave of protests. The vast majority of these have been peaceful, but what we've also seen is people who have embedded themselves in these seemingly peaceful protests and come for a fight. So what happened yesterday was really over very quickly because our police department is resolved to make sure that we protect peaceful protests, but we are absolutely not going to tolerate people who come to these protests looking for a fight and are intending to injure our police officers and injure innocent people who just come to be able to express uh, their First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. That is a very different thing that happened yesterday than, unfortunately, uh, what happened in the looting last Sunday night, which absolutely was a planned attack. It's not spontaneous when you bring U-Haul trucks, cargo vans, and high-end robbery tools. Who so we are it? working with our... Well, that's what we're working with our federal partners uh, to identify exactly who the ringleaders are. We obviously made 100-plus arrests that night. We're actively pursuing uh, cases against others. But we are determined to make sure that we get to the bottom of this and bring those responsible for this organized crime effort to justice. Uh, the White House has warned that Chicago may be emerging as a hotspot due to high transmi transmission rates and inadequate social distancing. Are you concerned that... What's happening? These mass gatherings will accelerate that further. Well, interestingly, we didn't see that rise when we saw a lot of mass gatherings in late uh, May, early June. But yes, of course, we're concerned. If you look across the country, virtually every state has been blowing up with new COVID cases. 
And while a number of those states were seeing a slight decline in the cases, they're still at such a high level that that's a problem. <clears throat> and as people travel from one jurisdiction to the next, then that presents challenges for other jurisdictions. Chicago has seen a steady increase in cases. That's being driven by <clears throat> our 18 to 29-year-old cohort. We've just got to break through the young people that they are not immune to this virus. Mm-hmm. And we're continuing to see an increase in the Latinx community, which we are actively engaged with our partners on the ground there to do more work, more intervention to bring those case rates down. So you've, uh, the, the public schools in Chicago have already uh, said they're going to go online for the right. fall. Um, how are you going to determine as a city when it is safe to go back, given, um, you know, you're concerned about community spread right now, but at what point do you say it's okay to put kids back in the classroom? Well, look, there's a, going, thinking about the schools is a complex um, problem. One, it's not just the students themselves. Um, it's the entire ecosystem of a school. So you've got teachers, you've got principals, and you've got staff. We're looking at um, Chicago. We have a number of teachers and support staff who are over 60. We know that those are still vulnerable population. We have a number of people that work in the school system who have underlying medical conditions. Comorbidity is still mm-hmm. a real issue. So thinking about the schools is a very complicated um, endeavor, and we want to make sure that we provide the safest environment for our young people to learn. Now, we've decided we're going all remote. We have offered a program um, to connect 100,000 um, houses for free with Wi-Fi and broadband because we know that that's critically important to enhance the learning environment for our young people uh, when we're doing re- remote learning. And we also got- need to make sure that we're... Go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. Are you getting everything you need from the federal government? You heard Mr. Kushner saying there's so much being provided. Is that true? Look, we're never going to get everything that we need from the federal government. If we waited for them, we'd be in dire straits. It would be great um, if there was um, not the chaos that we've seen at the federal government, Um, the White House fighting um, the CDC, the HHS hijacking uh, the reporting process, and still we don't have a consistent testing regime. We still don't have um, a federal mask policy. The chaos at the federal level has not been helpful to anyone, not Chicago, not Illinois, not states across the country. Uh, You are a surrogate for the Biden campaign. Um, During Senator Harris's own presidential bid, progressives challenged her past record as a prosecutor. Do you think that is still a liability going into the fall? I do not at all. I mean, look at the proof is in the pudding. The level of enthusiasm uh, that has come this week from the announcement that she would be the vice president. She really is, I think, inspiring a number of different constituencies. Of course, women. Of course, the uh, Indian and South Asian community. And of course, black women in particular. The enthusiasm for this ticket is, is so high. And people are excited. In the midst of all of what's going on, the concerns, the anxiety, the fear, the anger, people need something to hold on to. They need hope. And that's what the Biden-Harris ticket really provides. Steady leadership, leadership Mm -hmm. that is going to speak truth to power, and it's going to lead us through this difficult time. The contrast between Biden-Harris and Trump-Pence could not be more great. I think you're going to see that in full display this week. All right. Mayor Lightfoot, thank you for joining us. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This morning, we have new polling and estimates from our CBS News Battleground Tracker. Our electoral college model shows former Vice President Joe Biden leading in electoral votes and in many of the battleground states. That adds up to 279 electoral votes currently leaning in Biden's direction and 163 leaning in President Trump's direction. 96 are toss-ups. A candidate needs 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. Former Vice President Biden also leads in our national poll of likely voters. He is up by 10 points, some 52 to President Trump's 42. Our poll was conducted just after Biden had announced Senator Kamala Harris would be his running mate. We asked CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto if that choice energized Democrats. Well, it certainly seems to have given Democrats what they were looking for, Margaret. You look at, first of all, Democrats say they're overwhelmingly at least satisfied with the pick, and most say that they are enthusiastic about it. Then importantly, look at the groups inside the party. You talk to liberals and the very liberal voters who were with Joe Biden, but not all in the early primaries. They are glad that she was picked. You look at the African-American votes, so central to Democrats' chances. They are enthusiastic about the pick. And then maybe most of all, Democrats say they feel having Harris on the ticket helps its chances in November more than hurts it. And that's been such an important calculus for Democrats all year. You'll recall it's a big reason the Democrats voted for Joe Biden in the primaries, because they liked his odds this November. If the test of a VP pick is whether it gives the party what they're looking for, Democrats are telling us that, yes, Biden has passed. And as Biden and Harris go into the Democratic National Convention this week, Democratic voters are largely looking for the focus on them as a ticket. 86 percent want to hear good things about Biden and Harris, as opposed to 14 percent looking for criticisms of President Trump and Vice President Pence. CBS will have coverage of the Democratic National Convention tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern. Tune in. We'll be right back with Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We now go to the state of Mississippi. Joining us is the Governor, Tate Reeves, who is in Jackson this morning. Good morning to you, Governor. Um, according to Johns Hopkins... Good morning, Hop Margaret. Thanks for having me on today. We're, we're glad to have you. According to Johns Hopkins, your state has a positivity rate of 23%, which is the highest in the nation when it comes to COVID infections. Where are you headed going into a fall that the CDC warns could be the worst ever? 
Well, I haven't seen that particular data, but what I can tell you is in our state, uh, we peaked with a seven-day average of 1,391 cases on, on July the 29th. As of yesterday, we had brought that number down considerably to 728 cases per uh, the state of Mississippi for a seven-day trailing average. And so we've actually almost cut the total number of cases on a daily basis in half just over the last two and a half weeks. And what that shows us is that, that our mitigation measures are working. I will tell you what we've learned in these six months, which is critically important to the American people, is that if you will maintain social distancing and if you will uh, wear a mask, you can really curb uh, the amount of transmission in the community and you can actually maintain a relatively uh, normal life. But your state, I mean, I'm looking at a statement from your state health officer. It says that you have 11 hospitals with zero ICU beds currently available. That seems dangerous. Um, don't you need to take more stringent measures? I mean, you seem to be characterizing this as under control, but this looks like your medical system could be overwhelmed. Well, Mark, I think you may be looking at data that's two or three weeks old, but the no, reality this is, from a is briefing that, this that week with your state, state health officer. Well, the reality is in our state that we've actually cut the total number of cases on a daily basis in half over the last two and a half weeks. Uh, we peaked at 1,391, as I mentioned earlier. We're down around 700 right now. Do we have hospital capacity issues? We do. But the reality is, Margaret, in our state and virtually every other rural state across America, uh, we have ICU bed issues and, and hospital capacity issues even when there's not COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're certainly working through those. We have 150 ICU beds available throughout the state of Mississippi. We have over 450 ventilators available throughout the state of Mississippi. And so while we've got challenges, uh, we're certainly dealing with it. The other thing I'll tell you is we also know very clearly that hospitalizations and fatalities are a lagging indicator right. uh, with the COVID-19. And so what we're seeing in hospitals is really what the transmission was three and four weeks ago. You, with your schools, um, you have decided to send uh, children, the majority of children in your state, back to in-person learning. Um, about 300,000 kids are back in the classroom. You've had about 109 cases of COVID. You've quarantined roughly 500 students due to some um, cases. Why not shut down the schools? And what is your thinking at, in deciding that? Like, at what point does it get to an infection spread that makes you not just quarantine, but shut down the school? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, and the reason is, is very simple. And it's really what Dr. Redfield with the CDC has said. When you're talking about opening schools, you're talking about mitigating risk and making a decision between public health with respect to the COVID-19 and public health with respect to kids having not been in school in this country for right, six but, months. Right, but what I'm asking almost, you is once a school is already opened as you have done it and there is an infection in it, which you have, why don't you shut it down? Well, we, we have very objective measures in place to shut down schools if and when that becomes necessary. But, but keep, keep this in perspective. You said yourself that we have 300,000 kids in classrooms. We've had approximately 100 cases that have been confirmed positive. And what I'll tell you is we've yet to find one that actually the transmission occurred inside the school. In virtually every single one of those cases, it is these kids have gotten the virus 
outside in the community and brought it back into the into the schools so the point is no kid whether they're in school or not is completely immune from getting the virus and so we've got to take measures to make sure that those kids have the opportunity to learn. Right. Um, you could shut down bars, for instance, to stop that community spread, uh, as the White House has asked some states to do. Um, I do want to move on, though, because... We have I, significantly limited bars in Mississippi. Right. They close at 11 p.m. Um, in Mississippi, you can uh, request a ballot up to one day before an election, and your state was identified by the Postal Service as one where mail-in voting could be uh, delayed. Um, Are you confident that all mail-in ballots in the state of Mississippi will be counted in November? I am confident that the the ballots that are legally cast in the state of Mississippi will be counted. And I'm also very confident that Donald J. Trump is going to win Mississippi and he's going to win it big. Every, Every vote that is legally cast in the state of Mississippi will be counted in the November election. And I'm confident that once all of those votes are counted that Donald J. Trump is going to win Mississippi right. and many other states Yeah, I asked you what legally cast meant. But, so your state doesn't currently allow for absentee ballots for fear of getting COVID. Like if someone doesn't want it, doesn't feel safe going to uh, a polling booth and wants to vote by mail, you don't allow for that right now. Why not? We, we do not allow mail-in voting in the state of Mississippi. We think that um, that our elections process, which has been in place for many, many years, is a, uh, ensures that we have a fair process in which we have the opportunity to limit fraud. We still have fraudulent claims every single election. We've you actually got many rate of uh, folks in our state that have had Democrats Don't, that have had aren't a you worried that have about gone the health of your jail because of election fraud, and it's just reality. Well, I, first of all, well, that's, that's not substantiated. That, that but every legal ballot cast is going to get counted. You have a positivity rate of 23% in the state of Mississippi. Can you tell people that they can go to the voting booths and not get COVID? Why don't you offer the option for someone who's afraid of their health, someone with asthma, someone with diabetes, someone who's overweight, to send in their ballot by mail? Well, well, we're not going to allow them to send in the ballot by mail unless they legally qualify for an absentee ballot, which is right, certainly allowable under what Mississippi What I'm asking is statute. why not allow if, them if a, to qualify based on those comorbidities or those concerns, the fear of getting COVID? That is not what Mississippi state statute allows for. We're going to have an election. We're going to have a huge turnout in November. In fact, Margaret, I'll tell you, we've already had multiple elections in the last three months. We've had special elections throughout the state of Mississippi. We've had very good turnout in every single one of those elections. We've had fair elections, and we've had a winner, and we've had a loser, and we're going to do the same thing in November. All right. All right. No intention to change that. All right. Thank you, Governor. We will be right back with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's in Westport, Connecticut this morning. Good morning to you, Doctor. Good to have you back. Um, Good morning. I I, want to start where we always do, which is where we stand right now. Uh, 1,500 deaths on Wednesday. That rate 
back to where we were in the spring. Uh, you heard Jared Kushner say basically not as bad as the spring. But w what does it say about where we are right now that we're at these levels and where are we headed? Well, it's been fairly persistent. Um, we thought we'd be coming down by now. We'd see deaths peak and start to come down as the epidemics in the southern states started to peak and decline. But there's been a fairly persistent level of infection, hospitalizations, and deaths over the last couple of weeks. We've had over 1,000 deaths a day for at least two weeks now, over 50,000 infections a day on average. We hit 55,000 um, in the last day. Hospitalizations have come down a little bit, but they haven't really started to decline very rapidly. What's happening is as the cases start to decline in the southern states, Arizona, Texas, Florida, we're starting to see infections pick up in other parts of the country. California is still increasing. Um, really, the only state that seems to have come down quite a bit of the epidemic sunbelt states is Arizona. And we now have 14 states with positivity rates above 10 percent. Mississippi at 21 percent, uh, Nevada at 17 percent, um, Florida at 18 percent. So there's still a lot of states with pretty high positivity rates. Uh, in talking with Mr. Kushner, he said most people dying are over 70. Um, and he also talked about his confidence sending his kids back to in-person classroom education, saying children have six times higher chance of dying from the flu than COVID. Um, do you know where those numbers come from? Does that sound right to you? Well, I don't know where the six times comes from. Um, we need to be careful, I think, about making comparisons to flu. This infection hasn't been as prevalent in children as flu is each year. There's been about 330,000 diagnosed infections. If you believe we're diagnosing one in five to one in ten infections in children, maybe there have been about three million kids who've been infected with this. Flu is estimated to cause symptomatic illness in upwards of 11 million kids every season. This was a 2018-2019 season. And it causes a fair degree of asymptomatic infection in kids as well. So the prevalence is much higher. With flu, we see upwards of about 400 tragic deaths a year. We've already seen 90 deaths about uh, from COVID in children. And it just hasn't, probably hasn't been as prevalent in kids. And we also see concerning indications of post-viral syndromes, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which has affected mm -hmm. 570 children that's been recorded so far. So there's a lot we don't understand about COVID in kids. I think we need to be careful about making comparisons to flu and the death and disease we see in flu relative to COVID. The CDC said this week uh, that people who've recovered from COVID are essentially immune for at least three months. What do we know about immunity? That's right. And so this was the first study where they could say with certainty that for at least three months, you have immunity that would guard against reinfection. They actually said people who've been exposed to COVID who've had infection in the last three months don't need to self-quarantine because the immunity is that absolute. That doesn't mean you're not going to have immunity for a longer period of time. The study just looked at three months. COVID hasn't been around long enough for us to really study long-term immunity in a practical way and people in the community um, but it's probably the case that you're going to have a period of immunity that could last anywhere from 6 to 12 months. It's going to be highly variable. Some people will have less immunity. Some people will have slightly more. But it's good news that they're able to document that people have really sterile immunity. They're not going to get reinfected for at least three months and probably longer than that after infection. But this concept of herd immunity, is it, and I mean, how close are we to that? What do you think of it? Probably. Probably a long way from herd immunity. If you look at the seroprevalence studies overall, maybe 8% of the population as a whole has been exposed to this. 
In outbreak states like Arizona, it might be higher, closer to 25% based on some modeling, maybe as high as 20% in Florida based on certain modeling, and 15% in Texas. We know the seroprevalence in New York City is 20%. So that's getting closer to a level of immunity where the rate of transmission will start to decline. It's not quite herd immunity, but you're going to see declines in the rate of transmission because of that, that level of infection. There's also speculation around T-cell immunity, whether or not people who have prior infection with coronavirus have some residual T-cell memory that confers immunity. We don't know if the T-cells confer immunity, but we do know now that people who had prior infection with coronaviruses, other coronaviruses, have what we call cross-reactive T-cells. So they have T-cells that cross-react with this particular coronavirus. Now, whether that confers a level of immunity mm-hmm. has to be demonstrated, and we're not sure. Probably if it does, what it's doing is it's, it's helping prevent you from getting COVID the disease, but you're still going to get coronavirus the infection and maybe even be able to transmit it. Uh, The president on Friday announced that McKesson Corporation will be a central distributor of a COVID vaccine and supplies, but he also said the military is ready to distribute doses. Do you think it should be the private sector or the government distributing any vaccine? I think what the government ought to do is leverage the private sector. The, The companies, the distributors, the manufacturers know how to distribute vaccines through the existing supply chain. I think if the government tries to take physical possession of these vaccines and then distribute it through channels they set up, that could ultimately lead to hiccups and delays in getting vaccines to consumers. What they should be doing is directing the existing supply chain on where to allocate those vaccines based on where they perceive the need and what the allocation system is going to be based on who the vaccines are ultimately approved for, whether they're approved for frontline healthcare workers initially or mm-hmm. authorized for people who are at higher risk. But I wouldn't try to recreate the wheel here. I would use the existing supply chain that's worked quite well to distribute a lot of different vaccines um, very quickly. We were able to distribute the flu vaccine very efficiently through the existing supply chain. Okay. Well, if and when we get there, uh, and thank you very much, Dr. Gottlieb. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We want to turn now to the question of election security. We go to Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and former chief technology officer of CrowdStrike, a cyber technology company. Good morning to you, Dmitry. I know you have your own shop now. I I want to ask you, since you watch this closely, what is the area of concern for you in election 2020? Well, my biggest concern as a cybersecurity expert is, of course, the hackability of our election systems, both from the influence side as well as from the voting perspective. And I can tell you from my experience that voting is the hardest thing to secure when it comes to cybersecurity. It is literally the hardest problem out there. And the only way we know how to do it well and safely is by using paper, whether it be mail-in ballots or whether it be voting in person with a paper record that can be produced by the machine or the paper record, that you, paper ballot that you can mark up. Those are the safest ways. And the other way, of course, is to drop it off. Something that's not getting much attention right now with all the focus on mail-in ballots is that all precincts should have drop-off boxes by the curbside that people can drive by, walk by, and drop off their their ballot without using the mail. It might might surprise people that a cybersecurity expert says 
that that is the best option is to go old school, go paper. Um, but it, it is that paper route that the president has raised this week as saying that it greatly concerns him. He said the biggest risk we have is mail-in ballots, universal, universal mail-in ballots. Um, and he claimed foreign entities could interfere. He rattled off Russia, China, Iran, North Korea with mail-in ballots. Um, what do you make of that statement? Well, paper cannot be hacked. However, there is a legitimate concerns about logistics. I'm not so much concerned about foreign entities interfering in the paper process, but we do need to make sure that states are prepared to take in the huge number of mail-in ballots that will come in. They'll, they'll be able to do the signature verification that is necessary to make sure that there is no fraud. It can be done. Five states have been doing it for years now, like Oregon, Colorado, and others, uh, but others have not, and we need to make sure that they're ready and they're, they're preparing now versus the day before the election. You talk to people uh, in the government now. Um, why wasn't there a strategy to do what you just laid out? Well, I think uh, we haven't been preparing for this, um, and a lot of people were um, assuming that the disease would go away in a few months. Of course, it's still here, and now a lot of people are concerned about voting in person, and we need to make sure that they have an opportunity to do so safely. Right. Um, but there wasn't a federal strategy to have the states do what you just said they should have been doing for the past four years? Well, this is hard to do because, of course, the federal government is not in charge of elections. The individual states, right. in, in some cases, even municipalities are in charge of them. So it's really up to the states to do this well. New Jersey just declared that they will go all mail-in uh, voting in November, and that's a good thing. Uh, but uh, other states need to ramp up their capabilities. When you said that you were concerned about election infrastructure, the um, U.S. intelligence community has warned that adversaries are try to access, trying to access candidates' private communications and election infrastructure at the state and the federal level. The national security advisor to the president was on this program last Sunday, and he said uh, Russia and China are doing this, going fishing, essentially, on websites and the like. Um, he's been criticized for mixing apples and oranges. I'm wondering if, what evidence you have seen as to what Russia and China are actually doing. Well, Margaret, this is very important. There are different ways to interfere in our elections. And what we have seen in the past is, of course, the Russians in 2016 hacking into campaigns, hacking into political organizations, and then leaking that information out to the public through WikiLeaks and other channels. We have not seen that, obviously, this year. And that's a good sign, but of course, we still have a few months to go. But then there's the influence operations that they're conducting, um, and a number of countries are doing that now, China, Iran, as well as Russia, and not just around elections. It's really continuous on social media, through official media channels, and, and even government statements. Um, but the third thing that concerns me personally is really attacks on the infrastructure itself. Voter databases, uh, voting tallying systems, vote reporting systems, those are very, very vulnerable to hacking, and we need to be doing more to protect them. I know CISA, the Federal Cybersecurity Agency, is doing a lot to scan those systems right now, but more needs to be done. Very quickly, is there anything people at home can do to make sure their vote gets counted? Absolutely. Two things. One, everyone can participate, not just as a voter, but also volunteer. Uh, election uh, workers are often volunteers, so reach out to your county election officials. Ask if you can help. They're going to need a lot of help this year because of the challenging situations we have. But most importantly, be patient. This may be the first modern election we have where we may not know who the president is the night of the election or the day after. It may take days for us to actually count all the votes and understand who has won. So buckle up. It may be a long ride. 
Indeed, and we are preparing the coffee already here uh, in the news business. Thank you very much, Dimitri, for your perspective. We'll be right back. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This week marks the 100th anniversary of women obtaining the right to vote. As we commemorate the moment, we remember they weren't given the right. They fought for it. Adding a single sentence to the Constitution, the vote shall not be denied on account of sex, took decades. Amid a pandemic and devastating world war, suffragists like Alice Paul picketed the White House, endured jail and a hunger strike. A scandalized Massachusetts congressman implored Washington to ignore the, quote, nagging of iron-jawed angels, dismissing suffragists as bewildered, deluded creatures with short skirts and short hair. But they persisted. So did Carrie Chapman Catt, a savvy political strategist who went state to state swaying local legislatures to ratify the 19th Amendment. They reached the critical 36 states on August 18, 1920. Days later, the amendment, named after suffragist Susan B. Anthony, was adopted. And suddenly, more than 20 million women were able to vote in the presidential election that was 11 weeks away. We often think of enfranchisement as a natural democratic evolution. But it wasn't easy to convince men to share power. It was a bare-knuckled fight, swirling with sexism, racism, classism. Those were the forces that former slave-turned-activist Sojourner Truth took on decades prior. Suffragists also faced opposition from fellow women, some of whom believed it was unnatural to be involved in politics at all. I wish I knew how my great-grandmothers felt. I do know that by the time Mary McNamee Brennan walked into a Hell's Kitchen voting booth in 1924 for the first time, she'd already taught her husband to read and write and buried two of their six children in the pandemic. Life was not easy, and for women of color, the 19th Amendment was just a start. The Jim Crow barriers that kept blacks from fully exercising their rights were not dismantled until 1965. This week, for the first time, a woman of color joined a major party presidential ticket. Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you. And I do so mindful of all the heroic and ambitious women before me whose sacrifice, determination, and resilience makes my presence here today even possible. Senator Kamala Harris joins a handful of women who have sought the highest office in the land. There are now a record 127 women legislators on Capitol Hill. That's progress, but not parity. The Equal Rights Amendment, first drafted back in the 1920s, still hasn't become law. And the fight for a more perfect union continues. That's it for all of us today. Thank you for watching. CBS News will have continuing coverage of the Democratic National Convention this week, the Republican one next week. And next Sunday, we'll see you right back here. For Face the Nation, 
I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and CrowdStrike co-founder Dmitry Alperovich. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 